dog status, now I'm a big dog bitch. I pull up on the block in a big Corvette. Yeah. Riding around the city with a stick all black. Yeah. Try with a stoke, we ain't with all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Welcome yeah, to the yeah. Ross Project, the place where you will learn how to thrive and grow in every aspect of life, family, entrepreneurship, personal development, tech, and marketing using. Real, raw, and 100% no bullshit proven tactics. My name is Ivan Temelkov, and I'm your host. I hope you weren't expecting anybody else. And today on the show, I am joined by the lovely Aubrey Terrazas. Did I pronounce that correctly? You pronounced it perfectly. Amazing. Welcome to the show, (laughs) Aubrey. Thank you. It's good to be here. Awesome. Well, before we dive into your story and telling us, you know, about what you're doing nowadays and how you got into it. I want to share a little bit of a background info with listeners and viewers. So Aubrey is an 18-year hospitality professional, master sommelier candidate, and e-commerce entrepreneur who co-founded the digital wine service Pilates Club. Beyond leading the international wine buying for the team, Aubrey used her experience of tasting hundreds of wines each year to identify over 200 wine trades the core data that palatic club uses to expertly match wines to your taste so let's just say that you're a huge wine connoisseur you love wine right <laughs> yeah i drink hundreds of wines a year hundreds of wines if not thousands, per year. yeah <laughs> wow okay well before we get into that you know i would love to hear a little bit about your story and and and, and your upbringing you know where you've been what you've seen how did you take passion into wine and all this entrepreneurial stuff? Uh, sure. Um, so how far back should I go? Like, um, you know, you know, just, you know start with your childhood a little bit. I think it's always great to hear, you know, I know you've got, you know, you've experienced a lot of different cultures. Also, you've traveled mm-hmm. a lot, at least from what I picked up on your Instagram anyway, from what I saw. So, uh, but we'd love to hear about that and, and just kind of segue into modern day and how you got into Pilates club and everything that you're doing. Sure. Yeah. It, um, so it's, so it's, it's palate club, like your, your mouth palate. Okay. Um, but I do, I do like Pilates as well. Um, so that's, <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, but I, so I started, um, I do travel a lot, but I didn't grow up that way, but we did move a lot. Um, I'm from the Midwest. I was born in Des Moines, Iowa, um, and lived in like seven different States growing up all around the Midwest. And my family is not a wine and food family. My mom didn't know how to even, she didn't know what Pinot Noir was until a couple of years ago. (laughs) Um, So that was self-developed for sure. Um, But still moving around a lot, you you do definitely get used to just being in front of different people, meeting different people and still different ideas. Even if it's still the Midwest, um, you get introduced to a lot of different cultures and Mm -hmm. types of people. Um, But I started getting into hospitality when I was 14. I was a waitress at a pizza place in a small town in Illinois. And then I just kind of kept, and you know, that was my high school job. That was my college Mm -hmm. job. And then after you've already been a server for a few years, you're making a lot more money than your other, you know, undergrad friends that are bagging groceries or whatever. So it kind of stuck. And I did start to really develop not only a skill set but a passion for hospitality. Um, as well as a passion for wine, um, because as I started working at nicer restaurants, I would learn about the different beverages and the nuances and have to explain that to guests and pair it with food. I was a bartender for a while as well. And uh, yeah, I just kind of drank the Kool-Aid 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I remember being, I think 22 and it was my first restaurant working with a sommelier and I just saw this guy going around and just, you know, schmoozing with guests and just drinking wine, tasting wine all night. And I was like, oh my God, that's a job. Right. <laughs> right. And so I kind of transitioned. Um, that's a really natural. A lot of servers end up becoming sommeliers. Um, I did go to undergrad for French, um, with a minor in theater and music. So definitely didn't, you know, predict um, a life in like tech entrepreneurship at that time. Sure. Um, but fast forward, I, I was, so I was a SOM in Chicago for a few years, moved to San Francisco. Um, and I was working at Michelin starred restaurant studying for the master SOM exam. And then, um, eventually I just kind of, you know, when you're a manager, kind of a leader in a restaurant, you do a lot of sort of grassroots marketing events, things like that. Sure. Um, so later launched a, uh, a marketing agency geared towards wine, co-founded that in California. Um, and actually at that time was when I was introduced to Nicola, my, um, the other co-founder for Palette Club. And it, I just, you know, it just made so much sense to be able to see a different path for wine, to leverage a new skill set, And was mm-hmm. really passionate about, about one of the reasons why I stopped working at restaurants is because when you get really good at wine, you start serving a smaller and smaller population. It's, you know, just like the top 1% yeah. old, rich, white guys, um, they can afford your wine, can afford to eat there oftentimes. <laughs> right. um, but part of the reason why I love wine is because I have that passion for people that I developed from growing up and seeing so many different humans all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I like that wine is a social experience, something that can be shared. Um, it's also a huge avenue for curiosity and conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I, what I loved about the idea that he presented for Palette Club is so it matches wines to your taste. And then really that what's more important about that is you don't have to worry about the impression that you're making by selecting the wines or being nervous about talking mm-hmm. to the guy at the shop. It's really easy to find new, interesting wines and then share that with friends and a really fun experience through blind tasting. And that was just so much more on par with my passion about wine. Yeah. We yeah. launched that. And yeah, that's, um, that's been the past few years for me. So qu- question, you said that you had worked, I believe, in a, in a restaurant when you got into the hospitality industry in uh, Illinois, right? Yeah. W- which part of Illinois? Uh, so my, I lived in a few different parts of Illinois. My okay. first job, I went to high school in Geneseo, Illinois. Okay. Um, so in the Quad City area. Um, okay. So I then moved to Moline, and then uh, when I was 18, I went to Chicago for college. Okay. Okay. The reason I'm asking is because I live in the Midwest. I actually live in St. Louis and I commute a lot to Illinois for family okay. reasons. And so I, I was just curious. It's always like, you know, one of those things, it's a relatability, so to speak, but yeah. Yeah. So, uh, cool. So I think, you know, as you were kind of describing, you know, how you started out, it was really interesting because there were a few things that I picked up on is that I think at a very, very early on, you know, you realize that the passion for people, the passion for networking, the passion for socializing, and then you realize that, okay, you know, white rich guys that can spend $500 on a bottle of wine, right? At least most, I mean, traditionally, that's what it has been, the majority. And then you realize, okay, now I can serve a very niche market. And this is something that I truly enjoy doing because, you know, wine is more of a, an experience, right? It's, it's something mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, I think a very small percentage of people like truly appreciate. 
um, in a sense that, you know, the, the way it tastes, the way it smells, you know, um, the way it pairs with food, right? Like with steak or chicken or whatever it is that, that, that you're eating. So as you were talking about that, I think there was an alignment that happened earlier on that, that later on kind of came to fruition and alignment in, in, in a way that you love the social component, you love the networking, you love the conversation, and then you love consuming wine, right. And learning about wine. So yeah. it's, it's being in the hospitality space. It, it's kind of essential, right? Because, and you also had to entertain people, right? So you had to explain to people like what's a recommended choice, right. Uh, of type of wine, whether, you know, you, you, you buy a $20 bottle of wine or a $200 bottle of wine, because I think it, there's a differentiation in the type of customer that's going to buy $20 and a $200 wine, because the $200, you know, a bottle, bottle per wine customer has a much deeper appreciation for the aging of the wine. You know, it's where the $20 one is like, I just want something for dinner, you know, because I like wine and I want to spend $200 on. So um, that's awesome to hear your background, you know, that you really took a passion and then you moved around. And so how did you, at what point did you kind of jump into the entrepreneurial side, side of things? You know, how did that all come about? Um, yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, it was after working in restaurants for, I don't know, 15 years or something like that, I, I co-founded a, a marketing agency in California mm -hmm. that specialized in the wine niche. And I mean, honestly, like restaurants are really fucking hard. You're working mm -hmm. from, you know, people completely, un they think that we're all just students or failures, but I mean, to be like a true <laughs> restaurant professional, yeah. it's not only a skill, but you know, it's it's really underappreciated and you're working 13 hour days, six days a week. And I was working so much. And I mean, even when you're paid well, like I was already in a really good position for my career, had a lot of experience yeah. and, you know, I was making, I mean, just to be totally transparent, I was making like 70 K in San yeah. Francisco, which yeah. is basically poverty in San Francisco. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, if I'm working so hard work, I'm from the Midwest work ethic is not a problem for me. Yeah. Then I'd rather develop something for myself. Sure. Um, and so it was, it was that, and it was also trying to reach more people because, you know, when you work in a small fine dining restaurant, like I said, you're just very, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're, you're close to who comes into your doors, which is going to be a very specific demographic, which is, you know, it's going to be the top 1% wealthiest people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, around that same time is when Palette Club launched. And so I was, was doing both the marketing agency and Palette Club during that time. Um, and yeah, just helping the businesses grow and it, mm -hmm. you know, I really love the entrepreneurial journey, the flexibility, the freedom. Um, it has, as you know, it struggles as well, but, uh, sure. I, it's, yeah, it's been good. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to mention since you were, we were talking about hospitality is that I think with, you know, with, with COVID for one, I think hospitality really just took a hit, but then, you know, the hospitality industry specifically, I think has been struggling for, for a long time. And uh, mm -hmm. I actually was chatting with someone recently about gratuity when it comes to, you know, like restaurants and hospitality and, and kind of got into a discussion of, you know, is gratuity um, uh, something that is, you know, a given or is gratuity something that's earned? 
because I think, you know, I mean, whether you go to a, a fine dining restaurant or, or just any restaurant, really, just to pick up food, it's a sit down place, right? Whether it's a three star or five star, then gratuity is a part of it, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. at least I know in the Midwest, I mean, you were talking about, you know, being from the Midwest is that, you know, a lot of the, the servers um, in the Midwest that are in a hospitality space, they make minimum wage and they basically live on tips, more or less. And yeah, they, they don't even make minimum wage most of the time. They make, yeah. um, if it's a tipped employee, a lot of times, I remember when I was a server in Illinois and Iowa, it was different in California, but um, I made like $5 an hour. I'm sure it's more now, but yeah. No, it's actually about the same amount. I think it's actually less, actually. So uh, I'm bringing it up is because, you know, it's a really good point that you talked about fine dining. And something I wanted to mention regarding the hospitality industry is that I think, you know, if you really want to make it, at least from what I've heard, is that, you know, you really want to surround yourself in the fine dining space specifically, because that is where that opportunity is. That is where, you know, you're serving customers that, that genuinely are looking for an experience, Right. Mm -hmm. So when you go to I mean, uh, I was up in um, Virginia. Here's an example. I was up in Virginia at this place. It's in Bristol, Virginia. By the way, if you ever go up there, there's a place called the Tavern. Okay. It was built in 1779. And it is literally the only restaurant in this small, small city. And, and there's a lot of Civil War you know, history that goes in there. But anyway, this is like an old brick style restaurant. The ceiling is like kind of caving in it's got Love so it. much character <laughs> and personality right and you go in there let's say we dropped a 700 tab between four people and yeah. it wasn't just all the drinks <laughs> it was also the entrees but what made me realize is so i ordered prime rib right and this was like a 14 ounce prime rib and i mean it was huge but let's just say that consuming that prime rib like really gave me the impression and created the experience that for one, I had never tasted prime rib like this before. Yeah. It was just so delicately prepared, you know, like, like it, it was, it was like almost melting in your mouth and then paired with some drinks. It, it was just like such a smooth consumption. And I think that's what, you know, in fine dining, I mean, it's considered fine dining when I mean, you have to make reservations for this place, you know, uh, but for fine dining is it's a different type of customer base that you're serving. You know, like you said, it's it's those those people who are generally looking for an experience and they understand that you're going to have to pay for that experience, you know, mm -hmm. and then even more so is that if that experience is delivered to you, like your food is great, you know, uh, the conversation is great. I know we had uh, a great conversation with our waitress, you know, just making small talk, but that's part of the experience. And that's where the gratuity comes from. Because that's why it's called gratuity, at least in my uh, experience, is that, you know, you're showing appreciation for that experience, you know, for the food and, and just the entire process. So um, I just want to talk a little bit uh, about that. So let's kind of segue more into, you know, I want to talk since you're a huge wine connoisseur, I want to talk a little bit about the wine marketing side of things, you know, since that's something that you know, you've done a lot of is, you know, what are some of the, some of the things that as you got early on into wine marketing that, that you experienced that you learned that maybe was something that you were unaware of? Yeah. Um, I think that's a great question. I think one, so, I mean, marketing is, is so nuanced. There's so many different types of marketing, mm -hmm. um, specifically with wine marketing. It's, it's hard because one, it's very crowded, um, and two, 
I think it's one of those things where um, there's a lack of trust from the customers. And I think in part, because there's, you know, mm -hmm. to really, people don't really have great wine knowledge unless you spent years studying like me, it's hard to just know if you're going to like something or not, unless you taste sure. wine all the time. And so to really be able to have that trust, you almost have to try it. So it's very, events are very important for wine marketing because people, even to, to sell, to trade, people kind of need to try it before they trust it. And you can't convey that. I mean, like really wine always kind of looks the same in the glass, right? right. It's not like fashion or music that, you know, you can kind of see here, get an idea of what you're buying before you buy it. And so a lot of the, the things that work really well for other industries like PPC are a lot harder for wine. Um, yeah. I mean, and that kind of makes sense too, because wine, like you said, is an experience. So you kind of need to sure. experience it a little bit. Right. And um, so you hardly have to tap, you have to tap a lot into the brand and the emotion, even more so than another, than another company to kind of almost give an idea of the, personality of the wine mm -hmm. before you taste it if that makes sense yeah absolutely here's another question that i want to ask you actually since you said that you know the wine marketing space is so crowded and and so competitive so how does how does one you know differentiate in the wine marketing space let's say as a wine brand example is let's say you're helping a client launch a new wine brand right and it's really catered towards like an upper scale market right like true wine connoisseurs you know people that are looking for whatever kind of wine it is so how does one go about like really differentiate differentiating from like you know the the sea of competition sure um so like I said, a lot of it is branding. I think the storytelling is super important. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, these people are just going to make their own sort of emotional decisions if they're going to buy something before they taste it. Sure. Um, they might, it, it's because it's more sort of like young, millennial and fun. Um, I think impact is really important for wine as well. Talking about things like sustainability, um, biodynamic, you know, there's a lot of people that get into natural wine. Um, and again, I think it's kind of just, as much as possible, getting people to try the wine. That's mm -hmm. why, you know, Napa Valley put so much money into the tasting rooms, into the experience, yeah. because you're going to make this memory of when you're tasting the wine and it was a beautiful experience. You're in a beautiful area. You're having a great conversation, like you said, and you're always mm -hmm. going to have that nostalgic moment with the wine. And then, you know, hopefully be a very loyal customer after that. Um, because yeah. it's not just about the the one bottle. It's not like selling a watch or something. Although there's plenty of brand, brand loyalty to cars and watches, yeah. um, but you know you're not going to make the sale off of a twenty, even a hundred dollar bottle of wine. It's about getting people to join the wine club to keep coming back into tasting, um, and having that loyalty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason I wanted you to share a little bit about this, like you said, it's not like, you know, like buying a car. I mean, it's, you know, in essence, you're buying an experience. And uh, yeah. I think the type of customer base that, that you serve, uh, they probably have a much higher sense of optimism and and they're, because they're willing to try right is that yeah. they know that you know if i'm going to spend two hundred dollars five hundred dollars even i don't know a thousand dollars on a bottle of wine right i mean this is a very exquisite type of customer right that like they're really looking for like that that exquisite type of experience when they drink the bottle of wine it's like it's almost like they, they they probably have an expectation right of like what they're what they're gonna get what it's what it's gonna taste like but 
principally, the reason I brought this up too is I think in entrepreneurship, optimism is essential too. It's a core component is that you can't have skepticism. You got to be optimistic yeah. day in and day out Definitely. because uh, and the reason I bring this up is because, you know, you know, you know, this being in the digital space is there's so much controversy around now more than ever about fucking entrepreneurship and how everybody's an entrepreneur. But like yeah. when push comes to shove, it's like, where's your optimism? Right. And because so many are skeptical, you know, so many, I feel like new entrepreneurs are looking for instant gratification. So the reason I brought up the optimism is just that, you know, it's, it's really important to iterate the type of customer that you serve when it comes to wine. Now, I want to ask you more about the sustainability part of it, though, because that's got to be tough. You know, like you say, it's very competitive, the wine space, right? I mean, there's so many different clubs online. So how have you found with, with Palladium? Palate Club. Palate Club. Palate Club. <laughs> like you mean, Palate like Club. Palate. Yeah. Palate. Palate Club. That's what it is. Palate yeah. Club. You know, how have you guys found, uh, how have you discovered, I should say, to be able to sustain your, your customer base, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, to be honest, it, if, so you're talking about sustainability of a business, not sustainability of the environment, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, every business is a little bit different. And I think a lot of people focus so much on acquisition, but mm -hmm. especially for a subscription business, that loyalty is, is crucial. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, it's just, I think, customer service. It goes back to hospitality and being mm -hmm. able to um, provide them with an experience. Problems always happen. I mean, like you said, you know, you have to have that optimism. You're always going to have problems as an entrepreneur. And it's actually something that I took from being in fine dining. Mm -hmm. It's not about avoiding problems. It's about how you solve them. And sometimes that's almost a better experience for a customer than, you know, just kind of taking for granted that everything works perfectly all the time. Sure. Yeah. Solution oriented. I love that, uh, yeah. that you mentioned, because I think, uh, and I, the reason I had to ask the question is because I was just curious really specifically in the wine space, you know, how you build that sustainability, but you actually mentioned something that is really essential to just entrepreneurship and really business is when you provide good customer service, you know, a pleasant experience also, then you help build that loyalty. It takes time to build that loyalty. Hence why I think being solution oriented is even more integral because when shit hits the fan and let's face it that happens what do you yeah, do then <laughs> right Absolutely. right so yeah, what do you do then? i mean and that separates i think you know entrepreneurs from people that are just just dabbling and trying to build a side hustle because if you don't have the stamina to just you know push everything out and just focus on what needs to be done, then your business is going to fail. If you can't just be the chicken running around with your head cut off, you have to be cool, calm and collected and be able to see solutions. Yeah. That's what entrepreneurs are. They're finding solutions. That's why your business was created was because there's a problem and you're solving it. So if you can't solve problems, then you don't, you know, then entrepreneurship isn't right for you. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Uh, in fact, I want to share a quick tidbit with you. So I just binge watched the new series on Netflix called Startup. I don't know if you've gotten a chance if you're Netflix. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, okay. I am. I am. I am Netflix. Okay. okay. So you need to watch it. It's actually, well, the name Startup. It's about a cryptocurrency company. But the reason I'm bringing this up to you, I binge watched it in like two weeks because it was so fucking good, the story. Okay. But one of the things 
and, and I, I'm definitely not throwing a spoiler alert, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's about people, really. Mm-hmm. So it really emphasized the importance of people. It doesn't matter if you're building, you know, a $1 million, a half a million dollar or a 50 million or $500 million business. It's always about people because you do business with people. Right. And I think so many entrepreneurs now more than ever, uh, I think it's so essential to recognize this. Entrepreneurs don't recognize this. They don't understand that, you know, you're really talking to another human being, you know, the decision maker that's going to cut the check <laughs> for that opportunity is yeah. a human being. So uh, definitely check it out. It's called Startup. It's got a really oh. good cast uh, in it. It's, a, it's an amazing story, an amazing story. Uh, it has to do with building a cryptocurrency business, actually. But the fundamentals of, you know, building a startup and entrepreneurship and all of that, like, so, so good. So good. Um, I want to segue more into, you know, uh, talking about the ethical and the diverse work environment. I'm a huge fan of ethics. Huge, mm-hmm. huge fan. And I would love to hear your thoughts on, so with Pellet Club, did I say that correctly? Pellet Club, right? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So Pellet Club, you know, let's, let's use Pellet Club as an, as an example in your agency too, is this, you know, how do you emphasize upon the ethical approach? What are some things that you take into consideration, you know, when you're, you know, building your, your customer base and serving your clients? Yeah. Uh, so first, in terms of my team, um, when I'm looking for, for new team members, and so, with, for example, with my agency, Terravine, um, when I was recently hiring, I, I was looking for people that aren't like me. You know, I was looking, I live in France, um, and so I'm, I'm surrounded by French people all the time. And if the right candidate is, you know, an American girl or a French girl, that's fine. I'm not going to mm-hmm. also, like, you know, counter um, reject people that are just white women, if they're the right fit for the role. Sure. But, you know, if I see two CVs that are side by side and um, someone has a different perspective, they're from a different country, different language, they look different than me, I was more likely to kind of make sure that they make it into the interview process. Um, so that's one thing that I always try to encourage in any of the businesses that I've, that I've been hiring for. I, I think mm-hmm. a diverse team is always going to be a stronger team because they have different perspectives than you. Yeah. Um, in terms of the customer base, I, I, I mean, for the digital, with a digital company, you don't necessarily know who's on the other side, but you know who you're going to target because people are going to go for ads that look like them. So it's, it's not, it's actually not easy when you're doing a photo shoot to get a diverse group of, of people together, especially when right. you're a startup and you have a budget. Um, but that's something that I really, really pushed for because I don't want and, and it is true, like with, with wine, if you look at stock photos, it's like all white chicks, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that only, you know, like white chicks and sundresses drink wine. Like that is actually, right. you know, especially with millennials, like it's, it's a very diverse population that is into yeah. wine. And um, so I want people to, to feel welcome. And like, if they look at a page and even if it's unconscious, like if they see that it's only only one type of person on there they're going to think even unconsciously that they're not they're not being served by that company you know a couple things i wanted to touch upon so you said you were in france currently right what part of france yeah i live in i live in lyon france it's the third biggest city it's about a two-hour train ride from paris okay 
awesome. Okay, I'm totally jealous because like <laughs> France is on the bucket list, and uh, I'm Eastern European. I was born in Bulgaria, actually. So okay. uh, I'm segueing into the next thing you brought up, which um, I want to make sure it doesn't come across as controversial because you said that a diverse, multicultural, or, or in that in that in that capacity, I think is the way you mentioned it, is that is something that you look for, right? Is mm -hmm. a diverse, you know, team that has kind of different ethnicities, background, and you know, I, I guess as an immigrant as an Eastern European, is one thing that has been so essential for me personally is just that like fully acknowledging what grit actually means right like really understanding that and and there was an article like 10 years ago 11 years ago that i read i think it was even on forbes or inc that talked about how 40 percent of the fortune companies in the united states were built by immigrants or children of immigrants like some of the biggest like google being one of them right uh i think oracle being another one also ibm also like some of these household names that most people know about and here's you, you mentioned, like you always look for someone who has like that diverse background, cultural, and I, I'm a huge fan of that is because, you know, as part of our core values with my business also, I look for those kinds of things specifically because I, and the biggest thing I look for emotional intelligence above anything else, honestly. Sure. In fact, um, someone that I was chatting with on Instagram you know, I responded back and said, you know, when, when I look to hire, I look for emotional intelligence, you know, because I, I believe that everyone is coachable. They don't have to be an expert in everything, whether it's, you know, paid media or social media or copyright or whatever. Right. I mean, they need to have strong emotional intelligence. They need to have some experience, but they don't need to be experts in it, because what yeah. I found is. And I love that you said this, too. That's why I'm going off on a tangent here a little bit is because. I think people who have strong emotional intelligence are willing to go great lengths for you. And that's how you build a solid team. I mean, these are people, in fact, um, the, the, the uh, uh, original serious startup that I told you about in Netflix, uh, yeah. you'll find out that the group of the developers that they have, every single one of them possess that because there's a part of the movie where they don't get paid because the company is suffering, but yeah. they're still showing up every day. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, this in the startup world, it's like, yeah. you know, like cash flow is always a problem, right? Where you have yeah. little or you have a lot because you could literally go from a hundred to a zero overnight. And mm -hmm. I think that's probably one of the toughest things, you know, uh, that a lot of entrepreneurs, especially new entrepreneurs don't understand is that consistent cash flow takes time to build, you know, regardless of what industry, you know, or vertical you operate in. Uh, so thank you so much, you know, for, for mentioning that because I'm a huge, huge fan you know, on the ethical side, side of things. Uh, and so I want to kind of shift this. Um, uh, there, there was one thing here on the, on the notes that I had that would love to get your thoughts on is what is it like working as a woman in the wine space? Because yeah. you said, I think one thing you mentioned before you answer that question is you said, when you do a photo shoot, traditionally it's been white chicks drinking wine. And you're changing that perception, right? So I want to hear your thoughts on what is it like as a woman, you know, catering to white dudes, they're going to pay a few hundred dollars or maybe a couple thousand dollars for a bottle of wine. Yeah, I, well, so 
There's a few things. One from the hospitality side, you talked about gratuity earlier. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, it was funny because I literally just had this conversation with my husband earlier today. Mm -hmm. um, so even when you put aside colleagues, peers, mentors, whatever, actually the perception of the guest when you're a woman in a hospitality space, there's this really weird dynamic. And when gratuity is involved, it's awkward because, you know, you're, I mean, not for me anymore because I'm not, I'm not there. But even when I was a sommelier, not a server, you still rely on tips to make your money. Otherwise, you know, you don't right. make rent. You have to make tips. And right. so, and people know that. And so they feel like they can say anything to you. And so being a woman that worked in restaurants for like 15 years, I had all sorts of crazy things. And most of the time, until maybe the end of my career, very little um, backup from the managers, especially from the male managers. Like people, I had love letters sent to me from strangers. I was invited to Hawaii, I was invited to Japan, like all sorts of weird names, like, you know, and yeah. even just little things like cutie, honey, like, oh, we have the hot server today. Like just really, it's just, that's just constant. Like that sure. was every day, but you have to just smile and put up with it because you want to get paid. And then there's not really anyone backing you up and saying like, no man, like don't talk to my employee like that. Um, so that's one yeah. thing. And then when you're actually in the professional space and you're with other peers, you still are a minority. The women in the industry is growing um, but for example, the master sommelier thing, um, I, I'm just a candidate, but right now there, are, I forget exactly how many, there's like 244 master sommeliers in the United States, 26 of which are women. And so when you're going through the exam process or looking for a mentor, you know, it usually is you're talking to men, usually older men, if you're kind of a younger woman in this yeah. space and it is, you have to work twice as hard to be taken seriously and to move past the fact that you're a woman um, and that, you know, and create a professional relationship with the man without any expectations, especially since there's alcohol involved. And then on, when you're actually sitting the exam, of course it's, it's more intimidating to be a woman like in a room with two dudes in suits staring at you because you already have your own, yeah. you know, um, bias for, for yeah. your own dynamics you have to be that much more confident that much more prepared when you go into an interview an exam uh, a, a pitch whatever it is you have to be twice as strong because it is uncomfortable in those situations you know as you were explaining this and i, I actually believe it or not i has i, I googled sommelier 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 you know what even the sommeliers don't get it right Okay. Um, so yeah, <laughs> whatever. So, you, just say some, it works. <laughs> some, uh, some, so I actually Googled it because, um, and there's so much that I think can be unpacked about this because you brought up a really good point. How I think with women, it has been so biased traditionally, but I think it's been very sexist too, because yeah. like you said, I mean, you get in love letters, like, Oh, here's the cute server and this and that. And, and like, it really is almost sexist, right? I mean, no, it is oh, sexist it is. because it is sexist. it's being labeled. So it's got to be extremely challenging. And, and I think you mentioned confidence is being very bold and confident, you know, to be trying to penetrate and break the mold of a traditionally <laughs> predominantly male driven space, because you said white dudes buying wine 
and making sometimes even sexist compliments that are like, like you said, you put up with it because you want to get paid because you know rent is due, right? So it's got to be, and I admire that because you're you're standing up to that. I'm I'm a, I'm a firm believer that the entrepreneurial space specifically is changing and is yet to change even more because more and more women are entering the space. You know, uh, I think it was years ago when uh, GM, uh, General Motors company, actually hired their first female CEO. It was like a huge, huge yeah. leap because in the automotive industry, that had never been fucking done ever. So this mm-hmm. was like a huge shift. So I think in the wine space, you're really on the tip of, of an evolution uh, and really kind of changing the perception of uh, not, ju- not just, you know, becoming a master sommelier, sommelier, I'm going to get this right, master sum, uh, but also really, you know, changing the perception of how an industry really has operated traditionally. And I know that comes with a set of challenges. I mean, I think of, you know, what Tesla really did to the automotive industry and, and, and how he, he had probably even to this day keeps getting sabotaged because, you know, like the, the oil and gas companies, you know, like, like knew they were about to go out of business, right? Because here's this. So for you is, you know, you as a woman, as a fanpreneur coming in and really breaking the mold of what's traditionally been a predominantly male driven space. Right. So that, that takes confidence, you know, that takes boldness, you know, that takes courage, you know, to do that. So I, I, I definitely um, admire that and appreciate you, you know, sharing more about that. Um, so the only last yeah, I thing, think the, I, I just want to say the one, I think the, the biggest thing that we have to get over is um, I brought up all of those experiences is because I, I still feel like women are treated like commodities you know what I mean? Like yeah. to, to go up and to like, ex- just expect like this, the strange woman just be like, Oh my God. Yeah. I'd love to go to your house in Hawaii. Like, and just to totally underestimating yeah. how we value ourselves. And it's the same thing in a professional space. You know, you, you try to make these connections and you're trying to talk to investors, but they are actually just trying to have a, like a, a weird date with you. You know, like it's, we have, and then until we yeah. actually start seeing them as peers and not just, you know, is, is this woman someone that like, I can have a sexual relationship with or not, like, and just moving on and getting past that hump, then it's going to be really challenging for us to be taken seriously. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. You know, this is actually, I know over the course of probably the last couple of years alone, you know, one thing that I've really emphasized upon on the podcast is trying to bring on more fanpreneurs also who are doing amazing things because um, the way I see it is, you know, there's there's nothing on a woman that has a plan. You know, I being married, I know my wife has a plan. I'm like, get the fuck out of the way. You know, something's <laughs> is about to happen. But I think fanpreneurs are really enriching the entrepreneurial space. And I think you really having that niche with with wine is just that you're really changing the perception. You know, I'm really excited uh, for for what you're doing and where you're going. And uh, all I can say is is just keep going. You know, um, something that that I wanted to share with you that that was kind of when you were talking about how women were really treated as commodities, 
you know, is very unfortunate. And, and, and uh, I, I look at it from a standpoint that from an entrepreneurship and just really from a human being standpoint is just that women are not commodities, you know, they're, they're human beings, you know, your, pe- your peers, you know, just like me. So equality is even more essential, but I think we still have a long way to go, especially in the entrepreneurial space where uh, that equality is really enforced. And I would probably say recognized and appreciated. Uh, because, you know, women are doing amazing things around the world. So, you know, thank you for, for, for really driving this space, a predominantly driven male space, not to mention, I mean, so do you operate primarily in France or like globally? Uh, well, so Palette Club, um, wine laws are super weird. I won't get into it, but we only ship within the United States. Okay. I live in France, um, primarily. I spend, I still spend um, maybe uh, a third of my time now in the States. And um, the, the founder, Nicolas, is French, but li- he's the opposite of me. He's French, but predominantly lives in the States. Oh. Um, and then we do have a global team. Yeah, so it's between France, um, Eastern Europe, and uh, the, the States. Okay. Mostly okay. Sa- we're based in San Francisco. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, you know, it's uh, the day and age we live in is it's, you know, it's, it's a wor- virtual work environment. In fact, yeah. recently I was having a convo with someone and, and we were talking about how, you know, is the normal ever going to come back? I'm like, nah, I mean, virtual is like pretty much the standard. It's like Zoom meetings yeah. and, and global teams. And, and I think that comes with a lot of perks, right? Is having a global team is just because you almost have a team that operates 24 hours, right? Because of the time zones primarily. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really essential, but like, I think a lot of companies don't really acknowledge how, you know, different time zones and, and, and having a team in different countries can actually be such a huge benefit, you know, to your, to your business, not to mention as, is like what they bring to the table from a cultural standpoint, right. It's mm-hmm. like, because they live in different cultures, they experience different things every day. Economically, it's different, you know, like, like the economics of the United States are different than economics of Eastern Europe. Right. So um, I really have enjoyed the conversation and in respect of time, you know, I'm sure we could chat more about it. I'm sure you could share uh, a crap ton about wine and, and and all kinds of other stuff. But uh, before we wrap things up on this episode, you know, throw out some social handles, some websites, you know, how can people connect with you, especially wine connoisseurs? Uh, So. Yeah. Um, So on Instagram, I'm Aubrey Pops Bottles. You can DM me. Um, our website is Palette Club. That's P A L A T E C L U B dot com. So palette, like your mouth, not like painting palette. Um, I also am on um, my agency is Terravine, TerravineAgency.com. And I'm on LinkedIn. Um, Twitter, that's just my name. So you can find me. There's, I, there, I've only ever seen one Aubrey Terrazas online, and she was like 12. So it will be pretty clear. <laughs> she has, she has a couple YouTube videos. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, Aubrey, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. This has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you sharing all the inside, your experiences, and everything you've been, you've been, uh, you've been through. Um, and I'm excited for the rest of 2021 for you and, and the things that you're going to accomplish. So thank you once again. Thank you so much for having me.